Bon Appetit Foodcast. I'm Adam Rappaport. On this week's episode, we have two great segments for you. First up, Michael Harlan Turkel, photographer, host of the Food Scene Podcast on Heritage Radio, and most recently, author of Acid Trip, a narrative cookbook all about vinegar. How it's made, how to make it at home, how to cook with it, because I'm imagining you're probably not cooking with vinegar enough. So, senior food editor Andy Baragani talks to Michael about how he became interested in this very particular subject and all that he learned while researching and writing the book. After that, I sit down with food director Carla Lolly Music to go over her list of the 20 most important lessons she picked up over the years while cooking professionally in restaurants and test kitchens. Everything from the magic of white vinegar, see, vinegar again, who knew? To making sure you rewrap your Parmesan cheese with plastic wrap every time you use it. Something I am guilty of not doing. All right, let's do this thing. Here is Andy and Michael. Michael Harlan Turkal. You are a renowned photographer, host of the food scene on Heritage Radio, and now the author of Acid Trip, Travels in the World of Vinegar. I just have to get this over with. You, are you, I've been in awe of you for so long, <laughs> mostly because like, I f- feel like you're a chameleon in the industry. I mean, you started off as a chef and then a photographer, um, which you still are, and you've done how many books now? I've shot over a dozen and now God. written and co-authored two while going on three. Three. A writer, host of the podcast, and... Uh, now you decide to write a book on vinegar. How did this? Uh, how did this begin? Well, I wanted to do one of those. Boy, <laughs> my arms are tired. Kind of jokes because <laughs> it, it, it's a lot, and some people would consider it frenetic, and I think other people would say, "Oh, jack of all trades, master of some." Um, <laughs> it's it's just I con- constantly follow my kind of eccentric interest until someone says no or stop. Actually, when they say that, I usually go further. Keep going, yeah, and. That's all I've done. You know, uh, I've explored these paths that I've had interest in, and doors have been open, um, and people have been engaged and willing to kind of foster these interests along. And I've just been lucky enough to, you know, find this greater culinary community to be so open and sharing. Mm. Um, and I don't know if I found that in other kind of occupations, and I, I dabbled in a few here and there, but there's just been this common thread of of creativity and and you know, insight and intrigue that kind of pushes whatever I do along. And, mm. you know, so I could say, oh, yeah, it's, it's it's my nature. This is what I do and this is how I do it. But I think it's the nature of the community as a whole. Now, you focus just on on vinegar, on acid. Um, what, I guess, do you have a memory from your adulthood or from your childhood of your love for, for vinegar, the I sour mean, stuff? yeah. There is one vivid one in the book, and that's when I was a young cook slash photographer. I didn't know what I wanted to be yet, and was lucky enough to be in Barbara Lynch's kitchen at Number 9 Park. And I spent, well, I initially went there on a semester-long documentary photo class, you know, and I asked, can I just take photos of the kitchen? I was working at a greasy spoon and didn't really have the resume to work at that kind of fine dining establishment. But when she said yes as a photographer, I'm like, oh, wow, that's such a ruse. So I can get in these places without having the skills, the chops to be on the line. They, they were so willing to, to have food media at that time. Well, it wasn't even food media. <laughs> Someone with a camera in the kitchen at that uh-huh. time. So 
um, one night at the pass, you know, in the middle of service, she hands me a cap full of vinegar. Well, I didn't even know it was vinegar at the time. A cap full of something and says, take it. And when she said, take it, you, you take it. And I took it like a little shot and my eyes kind of opened up. My eyes usually don't open up, but they actually opened up. And I'm like, <laughs> what is this? She's like, oh, it's the best shit you're ever going to have. <laughs> Hands me like a quarter of a bottle that was left and said, take it home. Don't fuck it up. I'm like, okay. That's, that's like, that, that's a big challenge. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, slightly ominous. Someone who I respect so much and uh, a flavor I didn't understand anything about. And you get this like little dreg of something from a, a bottle that has all these beautiful colors and is so ornate and you can't fuck it up. Mm -hmm. So I think that was the beginning of my exploration about acidity because I I kept this maybe, I don't know, quarter cup of vinegar in my cupboard for a while until I felt ready to use it. And what were you using it on? Well, it was, I found out later. So 15 years later, I got to go to Vienna and meet the guy who made that vinegar. Oh my God. uh, Erwin Gegenbauer. (laughs) Uh, he's a, he's like the Willy Wonka vinegar. I, I still think he's quite possibly the best vinegar maker in the world. No disregard to other vinegar makers, but when you have a moment like I did at Number Nine Park, you know that that sets the canon for everything. Mm-hmm. So this book was really uh, another ruse to meet him because he really changed my life via my palate, um, and going to see him was. I mean, it was not a culmination. It was kind of closing a cycle that I've been trying to figure out for a while. Like, why is acidity so important? Why is vinegar such a um, well-known pantry ingredient that we know so little about? Um, So I really think that 15-year span, uh, things were fermenting in my head, trying Mm -hmm. to figure out, you know, what empirical data, what kind of information I needed to feed my soul. Mm -hmm. And it it was closing this loop and meeting that maker. It, it really is. It's the last uh, kind of flavor profile that home cooks have fully embraced. I mean, I think they know uh, to season aggressively these days, and chefs have been saying, more salt, more salt. And I think a lot of restaurants, when we dine out, it's like the secret is they tend to uh, season aggressively, and there's also a lot more fat mm-hmm. uh, in different forms. And then we kind of skip or forget about vinegar, but it's really what kind of awakens and brightens and round things out. I I keep on hearing from chefs, you know, they're seasoned to taste and that usually means salt, but if a dish is missing something, it's usually acidity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of people reach for lemons and I have nothing against lemons or other citrus. It's just, I reach for vinegar now. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's a matter of learning how to control that because it is intimidating. It's, it's, in this country, it's been white distilled vinegar or giant gallon jugs of red wine vinegar under the sink or your grandmother's crock pot growing a <laughs> giant cellulose mother on top. There hasn't been this world or this breath of vinegar available to us. So mm-hmm. it kind of got relegated to uh, these supermarket brands. And, you know, there's this thread of amazing artisan ingredients, singular ingredients. And vinegar has been around just as long, if not longer, than a lot of them. And, mm-hmm you know, deserves its just due. So I guess, why don't you take us the process of like how to, you have a mass recipe in the book. How, for our readers listening, for our listeners, uh, how would you make vinegar? It's funny, there is only I know that's one, a loaded question. Yeah, <laughs> and it's, it's like a 10 to 12 page question because <laughs> there is only one master recipe. 
Um, and I did that. Maybe it's my analytical mind or, you know, I, I used to dabble in theoretical math. I don't know if that's something you just <laughs> dabble in, but um, I could tell people how to make it by controlling all these variables. Um, and it's not really gaining a new skill set. It's just kind of honing the ones you have. Um, and that's time and patience, assuming you have patience. Um, you definitely need it to make vinegar. And vinegar is nothing more than a starch that can convert into a sugar, that can convert into an alcohol, can thusly become vinegar or acetic acid. So we know a lot of things that are starches from, you know, potatoes and pasta, a lot of things that are sugars from just pure white sugar to, you know, beets have a ton of inherent sugar to them. Um, a lot of things that turn into alcohol. I mean, talk about potatoes turning into vodka and beets can turn into beet liqueur or, you know, mm -hmm. breads into kvasses. Well, those are all potential vinegars. Mm -hmm. Like I, I, I walk around supermarkets now and I'm like, Potential vinegar, potential vinegar, potential vinegar. <laughs> I mean, it, it, I think it drives my wife a little nuts, but now it's like that Tootsie Roll commercial. Everything I see is vinegar or can eventually become that someday. So I guess you would you would need to start with some kind of quality ingredients. What the, What would those, I mean, it seems like there could be, there's a lot more than just wine, but uh, I guess how would you be able to go about choosing the right ingredients when making vinegar? Well, I think you said the right word, and that's quality. Because mm -hmm. I want to dispel this preconception that vinegar is bad shit. You know, it's not made of bad wine. It's not made of bad produce. It's not made of something that's gone too far. It's made of, I mean, great vinegar is made of great things. Uh, so start with a fantastic base. And I don't mean alkaline. I mean, mm -hmm. like, start with some kind of uh, substance or ingredient that is either at its peak or, you know, it has the aroma or nuances that you want because those can be carried through the whole process. Um, I, for one, started my vinegar making on accident, like most vinegar, I think, was made or is still made um, by leaving a bottle of wine out, then, you know, leaving beer in a barrel in the backyard. And when I opened that up, it overwintered and mm -hmm. opened it up in the spring. It was the best damn, you know, beer slash malt oh vinegar I've ever tasted. And I asked myself, what? How? How? Like, how did this happen? I didn't do anything. This is so non-interventionist. Um, then you become the interventionist and figure out how to do it again. So I started with those things, wines and beers, and kind of fostered them along. And little had to be done with wines. They're already in the right range of alcohol, 10 mm -hmm. to 14%. Um, you know, so you don't have to deal with sugars. You're already at that, like, third step of starch, sugar, alcohol. I guess vinegar. I'm curious, does it matter the alcohol content? Would you go with a higher alcohol or lower alcohol wine or? Uh, 10 to 14%. 10 to 14? Yeah, that, that range kind of works best. Not to say that you can't make vinegar of things that are a little bit lower, a little bit higher, but that's the sweet spot. And in that one master recipe in my book, I kind of give you those numbers that I've found to be most ideal, mm -hmm. uh, starting from sugars where— I like my sugars between 19 and 23 bricks. Mm. And I didn't know what the hell that meant until I learned about winemaking and <laughs> cider making and mead making. I had to learn about so many brewing and even distilling processes and just to make vinegar. Mm. Like, it's it's ridiculous. You see vinegar on a shelf for two bucks and I go, what the fuck? Like, how? Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> how the hell did you go through all this just to make that and sell it at $2? Because it's crap. And we can go on that diatribe in a little. But, 
you know, I, I toyed around with wine and it kept on working. And I toyed around with beer and I'd have hits and misses. Then I started kind of exploring outside of that. Um, and I had a lot of failures because it didn't hit those numbers. So you have to coax it along. You have to have the right amount of sugar in there. You have to have the right amount of alcohol outcome. And then, you know, then it will, not easily, but it will turn into vinegar. Eventually. Yeah, but you have to be within these bookends. Uh, we, Brad Leone, our test kitchen manager downstairs, he has all sorts of experiments. Um, he's making soy sauce. He's uh, uh, kombucha, tapache, and he tried doing vinegar, and it never really hit the mark, and he waited, and he waited. It was like one month, two months, three months with um, senior food editor Chris Morocco, the two of them, and they were just kind of – things weren't working out. They had uh, – they started off with like a – good wine and added some a splash of brags and just like hope for the best. And <laughs> that's probably why. I don't know if there was how much thought there was to their approach, but yeah, that didn't work out and they were very disappointed. So I guess what would be indicators when making vinegar of just kind of knowing that is something that, that things are happening? Well, we know about this thing called a mother. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not going to say mothers are bullshit, but they kind of are. They're, they're not necessary, um, though they do help. And I'm, I'm not talking about my familiar mothers who, whose birthday it is yeah. today. Um, but, you know, the, it's, it's, it's SCOBY. It's this big uh, floating mass of cellulose, um, the symbiotic colony of bacteria and yeast, if you want to define what a SCOBY truly is. But I believe it to be an indicator of things either going well or wrong. And a lot of people put that glug of Bragg's because they think it's, you know, live acetobacter and it's going to expedite the process. Um, It might be, it might not be, but there's so much indigenous yeast and so many things naturally living around us. uh, And that can actually foster the process along. Mm -hmm. So to throw a mother or throw some live vinegar in there is sometimes expediting a process that doesn't need to be accelerated. It's unnecessary. Yeah. And you lose aroma and flavor and nuance. You know, I I almost implore this uh, slow and low method like barbecue. Mm. And I think it's created the best vinegars I've made. And it's certainly made the best vinegars I've tasted around the world from other producers. So yes, it takes a lot of time and patience, but there are indicators, like you said, and a mother is one of them. If a mother forms, yep, things are happening. You're going in a good direction. But if that mother forms and becomes too big, it's kind of like a helicopter mother mm-hmm. and it can suffocate everything underneath. Mm-hmm. You know, if it touches the edges and there's no way for oxygen to actually uh, permeate that, um, that's what vinegar needs to live to, to, to go through the process. You know, uh, vinegars that are made by more industrial companies are made in these giant uh, stainless steel like silos and oxygen. They're called acetators. It's just blown through them, so they convert that much quicker. But then when you taste those vinegars— They're flat. There's nothing. Yeah, lack complexity, flavor. So you kind of want it, again, slow and low, oxygen to do its thing. But you have to watch, um, and you have to taste, most importantly. Mm -hmm. Vinegar is is a taste thing. You know, it's—when you're making it, too, yes, you can use a pH strip to see— if it's between 2.8 and 3.4. Uh, even before that, you can use a hydrometer to see how much sugar content or what it's going to convert into ABV-wise. But 
vinegar or acidity is just a, a taste and a preference thing to me. So that's why there's one master recipe because you got to get it to where you want it to be. You uh, seem to have to travel a lot for this book. You mentioned going to Japan, Austria, Italy, France, and uh, their kind of approach and appreciation for vinegar. Uh, I guess, did you discover one of those cultures to really have a deep love for the for the tart stuff? Or I mean, they all do, and it's all so different. I was most confounded by Japan, you know, and I love that country. And I love the sensibility of singular ingredients there. Mm-hmm. There's this term, shokunin, uh, and it's these artisans that have been doing whatever they do best, and it's you know, generations upon generations of the same family doing so the same way, um, it didn't translate to vinegar. There were more than a handful, but I had to search. The majority of vinegar in that country, uh, sadly, like the U.S., is industrially made, uh, and it's mainly rice vinegar. There's a lot of apple cider vinegar, a lot of apples in Japan and other kinds too, but it was mainly rice vinegar, and that industrial rice vinegar was made of we think of it coming from sake, really bad sake, mm. or I, I would barely even call it sake. They were making a rice spirit and then making it into rice vinegar. Huh. But to find these artisans, holy crap, it was outstanding. The subtleties, the nuances, the stories behind it. I found a guy in Miyazu, three and a half hours north of Kyoto on the Sea of Japan, who grows his own rice to make his own sake <sighs> just to make his own vinegar. I mean, that's ridiculous. I, yeah. I only found one person in Emilia Romagna uh, in Modena that grew her own grapes to make her own juice, to make her own balsamic. So, I mean, talk about closing the cycle. But in Japan, even with these amazing stories and, uh, you know, great vinegars, vinegar or acidity isn't really a forefront flavor in Japanese cuisine. And it's kind of a backbone if you look at sauces and look at marinades, it's always about having balance or, you know, some kind of harmony. I guess a lot of people think of vinaigrettes, they might think of pickles, but what are other dishes that people would use vinegar for? Sauces. I mean, French cuisine isn't all butter and cream. You know, you you have to have acidity to cut through that fat, and something as simple as a Bernays has vinegar in it. Hollandaise has vinegar in it. You know, yes, you can do it with lemon juice, but when I learned these classic sauces, I think it was almost to save some money. You know, a, a chef or a cooking school will let you do that with vinegar over fresh produce. Mm-hmm. Plus, there's consistency in vinegar. A bottle is, you know, containing some kind of substance that all has the same qualities, but from lemon to lemon, you're getting a different juice. Yeah. Uh, but vinegar is is omnipresent in cuisine. You know, it, I found it in most everything other than bread, even though now I found it in bread. You know, Irish soda bread sometimes uses uh, sodium bicarbonate and vinegar, like that old science project where you make a little volcano. Mm. You know, you put the sodium bicarbonate or baking soda in there, pour some vinegar or lemon juice, and it explodes. <laughs> That's the leavening agent for, you know, Irish soda bread. Um, there's maybe some black breads from the Baltics that use vinegar as their flavor profile, or they let the fermentation go a little more acetic than lactic. But I found it in in drinks. You know, obviously there are shrubs. shrubs. Well, not obviously, but there are these things called shrubs, shrubs, which are becoming more and more popular. Yeah, I feel like we've seen them for a few years now. 
in New York, but I've, other parts around the country. And uh, I guess, when did they come about? Like in the 19th century, they were popular? Or? Yeah, and they're not what they used to be. I mean, they do have their place in cocktail culture in the UK. Um, but here, they were made as some way to preserve a fruit juice, you know, at the end of a season or during a bumper crop. And, you know, you fortify it with sugar and you preserve it with vinegar. And you put it in your larder, you know, put it up on the shelves and you use it for the rest of the season. Uh, there's this great farm in Pennsylvania called Tate Farms and their raspberries are immaculate. And their raspberry vinegar is, I can't even tell you how amazing <laughs> it is. I always have a bottle of that in their raspberry shop around. That's so funny because it's like I, when you mentioned raspberry vinegar, it was one of those things that just it took me. It's like, oh, no, oh, no, like, no, 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 no. It's like one of those things that I would never – buy or even think to make. It's like this raspberry balsamic vinegar that my mother might have <laughs> bought when I was a teenager because she wanted to try something new on the on her spin, bed of spinach. Or <laughs> yeah. Um, I know I got this question from a lot of my colleagues. They were wondering if a recipe, or I guess a few of my colleagues, uh, if a recipe called for a specific vinegar, let's say rice vinegar, but they don't have rice vinegar, how would you go about that if they wanted to swap something out? I think you go by percentage acidity. That helps. You know, rice vinegars are often a little softer and less acidic. So you find something in that 4% range. Um, that said, fuck it. You know, try them all. Try them all. You know, and that's what I think I was doing in this book, trying to see whether or not there were confines to vinegar. And... There are some, I'll tell you, you know, when I was testing and I needed another tablespoon of something and I didn't have it, yet I had three to 400 bottles of vinegar at my house. I'm like, I'm not going to go out and buy another bottle of vinegar. I'm going to use this one instead. <laughs> got to clear out the pantry a little bit. And I, some of the results were fantastic. And take that basic vinaigrette recipe and, you know, figure out what your neutral oil is and keep that as mm -hmm. your standard. But Swap out the, the acid. And see what you like. And I, I would say that with a lot of recipes. It's not like, when I use this and I don't have it, I use this. You know, I, it depends on what flavor profile you're going for. I will say I do not recommend using white distilled vinegar for anything. Wow. That is made of not so great stuff. I'm still investigating um, what the majority of that is made of. Uh, but there is very little protocol in this country to regulate vinegar making. And I don't want to start this story of big vinegar, take them down. But um, I'm trying to get to the bottom of this because vinegar or acetic acid can be made from ethyl alcohol, any kind. So that doesn't preclude it from being made from ethanol, petroleum, wood spirits from the wood industry when there's extra pulp and they just turn that to straight up liquor. Um, so, yeah, I'm suspect as to what white distilled vinegar is made of. All right. Now I'm a little afraid. <laughs> Subsidized corn. <laughs> I mean, like, it's, it's a whole other world. I, I, I found this underbelly um, that I'm still trying to scratch the surface of. Yeah, it gets a little scary. I guess one thing that I know I do and I think a lot of people do is they buy vinegar and then they keep it for a long time. <laughs> I think of it as almost indefinite, but that being said, like I do use a lot of vinegar in my food, so I ne don't necessarily keep a bottle around for too long. But how long does vinegar actually last? 
Well, feel these bottles. I brought a couple bottles in for you to taste, of course. They're cold, right? They're cold. Put them in the fridge, man. Because I'm assuming that most people have their vinegars above their stove uh, or somewhere that's warm in the kitchen. Um, and even though it may be a pasteurized vinegar, it can re-ferment. Um, it's getting reduced down, and when it reduces, there are saccharides in there that can re-ferment. You and, just blew my mind. Yeah, so put put your open vinegars in the fridge. Um, you hear that, Brad Leone? <laughs> I mean, obviously you keep them out for a certain temperature and amount of oxygen to ferment them, but once anything's done fermenting, you want to stop that, uh, whether or not it's hermetically sealing them or putting them in cold storage. But, I mean, I, I apologize to my wife many a times for taking over the fridge and taking over the house with as many vinegar bottles. Rather than bottles of champagne or wine. We still have them. And, you know, uh, Megan's little collection of uh, wines are about 10 feet away from my collection of vinegar. And it looks like they're, it looks like, a, what is that movie? Um, Braveheart? You know, where they're all lined up ready to fight. But I'm like, well, mine are going to beat yours because... Yours are inevitably going to be mine. I love that you said Braveheart and I was thinking West Side Story. Yeah, no, like, same thing. <laughs> you just need those two different, you know, uh, factions that are really actually the same. You know, and both of those things, the, the endings, I think I'm right about Braveheart, but I might not. Let's do the West Side Story. <laughs> but both of those factions, they come together because of some kind of similar interest and love. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel like that's the story of wine and vinegar, too. Uh, again, you know, vinegar isn't bad wine. It's good vinegar or should be good vinegar, and they can live in harmony. I mean, Megan traveled, my wife is a wine writer, uh, traveled with me uh, through Europe for my book, and it was fascinating on both our parts to see all those parallels and understand that, you know, that lexicon and flavor profiles could be similar. Um, she had never seen balsamic being made before, and that's the same grape as Lambrusco. Uh, and, and to taste those things side by side was, uh, you know, it was cathartic. You have a section in the back of the book that goes into these kind of 2.0 vinegars, <laughs> I want to call them. They have some crazy combinations. There's like a Negroni-flavored vinegar, a chocolate porter vinegar, a coconut rice vinegar. Where did you go about, I guess, just you were just experimenting. You were just really going for, for everything. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to see, yeah, how far I could push it. And and you have some here with us. Yeah. I have some of my friends' amazing vinegars. But, you know, why do we have to stop at rice vinegar or wine vinegar? At, like, why can't it be uh, how chefs build dishes? You know, I start with this flavor and I reinforce it by this. And so I kind of thought vinegars in the same way. And, you know, that chocolate porter, I found that dark beers, dark unhopped beers, because of the higher roasted malts uh, convert to much better vinegar. So dark beers should be on the table next to your fish and chips rather than like a light caramel malt vinegar. Um, but I wanted more chocolate out of these chocolate porters and chocolate stouts I was using. So I added some chocolate and cacao and like <laughs> because I wanted to reinforce that flavor a little bit. And I kind of thought about that when I was making other vinegars. Uh, there's a ginegar in the book and it's a – play on gin, the majority of vinegars I make now for, you know, consignment and for restaurants are wine base, uh, honey base. So it's like a mead, mm -hmm. partially because it, it works. Like it's been the most efficient and the most economic. Uh, anywhere from 
one to five to one to seven honey to water, um, dependent on the honey. And I check for the bricks or the sugar content and just kind of let it rip. Indigenous yeast takes really well to glucose, which is its um, sugar. Uh, and it's just, it's beautiful. But then I was left with honey vinegar. And I'm like, how can I make something more than this? So I asked um, the people on New York Distilling if I can use their spent botanicals from the gin-making process. Um, because that's a normal question to ask somebody. <laughs> <laughs> the whole project started because I didn't want to waste anything. You know, when I first figured out vinegar, I'm like, well, I can use all these things that are going bad and et cetera. And um, I still look towards that. It's a s sustainable idea. But now I'm building flavors that don't seem like they come out of that. You know, they seem interesting and fascinating and complex. So that vinegar tastes like gin, but it's a honey-based vinegar. There's a hot toddy vinegar. I saw that, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I hate it. I hate it so much <laughs> because it's so good that everybody wants it and I can't make enough. Better than the apple pie vinegar? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I love the apple pie one, but I mean, the hot toddy vinegar, it— once you taste it, it has a little bit of residual sugar left, and I intentionally put that in, um, so it's or left that, so it's a little more of a sipping or drinking vinegar than a straight up one. But it started with whiskey and lemons and cloves, and it tastes like a hot toddy, and it's so soothing and warm, and it's fucking amazing for deglazing pan sauces, like roasted chicken glazes too, acidifying you know beans like. It's it's a great autumnal bottle to have. It's, I feel like there's a trend right now when it comes to vinegars. A lot of these kind of small batch artisan uh, vinegar makers, the, the vinegars tend to be a little bit more on the, the sweet side. Like this, you have this agrodolce thing going. It's not as fully tart, I remember. I mean, there's some ones that we loved uh, in the test kitchen. I feel like Katz strikes that balance. They've been around for a while. Yeah. Well, he, he kind of – he's on both sides of the coin. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, he's playing towards the market. And I think his Honey Viennier, that Agridolce one, uh. is like one of my favorite in the damn country. And he's a master. He's been doing it for years. And, again, I think he's playing towards the market sometimes. But then he has ones that uh, are strikingly acidic. So, you know, it's just a matter of looking through what pantry he's going to make. But let, let's, let's taste – Yeah, these um, – these are from Keepwell Vinegar, which uh, I originally met them when they were making in the basement in Washington, D.C. But uh, it's two ex-pastry chefs from Woodbury Kitchen in um, Baltimore, Spike Gersh place. And, you know, pastry is mainly necessitated on sweet and sugar. So it's fascinating to find these vinegar makers looking for alternative sugar sources. Or, I'm going to slurp uh, yeah. away from the microphone. <laughs> Oof. That isn't sweet, is it? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, that uh, works. I'm I'm awake now. Yeah. Do Do you know what kind this is? There's a slight bitterness to it, and there is bitter on the label. And I'll, I'll let you have that because this is bitter lemon vinegar, and it's funny to see lemon or a citric acid involved with an acetic acid, mm. but there are these giant lemons with a lot of pith, and they seem useless. But Keepwell has done something amazing and kind of use apple cider as a base and then these bitter lemons as the flavor and the nuance to kind of build it out. And I think built a really interesting— Wow. Like instead of grabbing a lemon, this is kind of the entry 
vinegar for me of their catalog. Uh, they, they, they're now in, what, Maryland, and they're using a lot of the Chesapeake, you know, food shed mm-hmm. uh, to look for ingredients or, you know, there's this aronia berry, uh, also known as a chokeberry, which is kind of this purplish berry. I think it tastes somewhere between a cranberry and a blueberry. Um, so it has this, yeah, well, you're going to take a sip now because you're not awake enough. <laughs> yeah, I only got five hours of sleep, yeah. I have to admit. But, I mean, it's so amazing because you can you can taste that fruit in it. You can smell that fruit in it, yeah, too. Yeah, you can smell the fruit. And I think what they're doing is, again, coaxing out these flavors by letting it be itself. That's delicious. Yeah, and it's a little dry, kind of like a cranberry, yeah. too. Like the finishes of these vinegars are so awesome. Oh, yeah. And this one, I think is, yeah, it's aronia berries, apple cider. They put a little bit of vinegar in mother just to have pseudo consistency. Not to say that, you know, working with fermented products where there's live culture and bacteria, it's very hard to have a consistent product. Very, very hard. And then here's the third one. This is super savory. This is a celery leaf vinegar. I think I might like this. This might be my favorite. It's totally wacky. Oh, yeah. Super weird. Yeah. A little funky. But it's all the cuttings of Mm. celery leaves that, you know, when they're selling hearts at supermarkets, they usually get rid of. And they're just floating these in the base apple cider vinegar. Yeah. but these are all these mid-Atlantic ingredients that would go for naught, either be thrown into compost or who knows where they'll go and they're repurposing their flavors um, in something that is preserved and can last for a long time. So I, I just think they're such amazing champions of what can be done with vinegar and with vinegar flavors. There's a handful of vinegar makers in this country doing the same thing. Daniel Lieberson of Lindera Farms, um, Albert Katz, like you mentioned, but, you know, they're, they're doing things to preserve local and regional flavors. And, again, we don't have to be relegated to these singular white distilled or even red and white wine vinegars. Like, why not have a Dolcetto vinegar or, you know, ha- have, you know, a Muscadet vinegar? I mean, we could have varietals that are far past just the, you know, term red wine, white wine. Oh, with that, Michael, I have to... <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, Andy, a pleasure. I am a vinegar lover, and I'm sure all of our listeners are now ones too. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So, Carla, Emma here emailed me a couple weeks ago, mm-hmm. said you did this piece for the bonapete.com on like 20 cooking rules or things you've learned over the years. Yep, that basically sums it up. Our good friend Emil Stonek asked me to contribute like some of the restaurant things I had learned over the years. Back and in the day. Back in the day. And then a- that actually turned into a stream of consciousness list that they got down to a, a shorter list of 20. Okay, so I read the first one <clears throat> and it said, resist the urge to stir or flip food constantly. And as soon as I read that, I was like, yes, this is a podcast. <laughs> I have not read the other 19. Great. So, so we're going to bang through these. I want to hear your thoughts, and I'm going to give you some of my thoughts. Number one, here we go. Are you, re- are you ready? I'm, I was born ready. Okay, resist the urge to stir or flip food constantly, period. You need it to make contact with the pan and for the pan to be on the heat to actually cook anything. 
So I learned this rule on day two of my first line cook job, which was at Montrachet in New York City. Mm. And on day one, I had no idea what I was doing, but I had a lot of fry pans. So I just tossed and tossed and tossed the whole <laughs> night. And the second day I came in, the woman who I was the entremetier and she was the fish cook and she was like, great job yesterday. Um, Today, you know, you don't have to move the food around the whole time. Because <laughs> you've seen in movies doing yeah. the flip and everything. And it was like, you know, also a foot above the burner, just like trying to toss everything. Um, and that was really great advice. I will say this. So whether you're making a strip steak, a chicken paillard, or skin on fish cutlet, just leave it on the heat. Let that crust form. Don't peak. Don't do it. Just let, just be confident in the pan and the heat. Let it do its job. And then flip it when it's nice and crusty. And one thing that Samin Nosrat, uh, the cookbook author, teacher, pointed out, always plate the food that first the first side because that side is always gonna be crustier and crispier than the second by the time presentation the dish is done. side down exactly so you want to if you're doing a fish fillet you put it in skin side down if you're cooking yes. scallops look for the pretty side of the scallop and put that down they're yeah, not the but, same but, but what side is down in the pan then goes up on the plate correct yes okay number two wrap cheese in fresh plastic wrap every time you use it or else it won't be properly sealed. I don't even know what this means. So say you're using Parmesan. Okay, I do. Every day, almost. And you unwrap it. You have it in wrapped in plastic wrap. You open it up, you grate it, and then, you know, most people just put it back in that same thing of plastic wrap and yeah. push it or push it back down, <laughs> yes. but it's not sealing. So don't do that. That's what I'm saying. You need a fresh sheet oh, every time. To really, to really achieve that airtight seal. Yeah, because it's good the first time. So yeah. I learned that from reading Steve Jenkins' book, The Cheese Book, and yeah. he was the guy who started the Fairway Cheese Counter. Okay, I'm definitely guilty of doing this. And like, okay. you're like, how many weeks can I get away with that one piece of ceramic? It makes wrap? me so crazy when I open up our little deli drawer and it's all like smushed pieces of plastic wrap. Yeah, you would not like my my little cheese my cheese my cheese drawer. All right, number three, never dump the contents of a pan onto a plate or platter. Only hacks do that. Use a serving spoon to dole it out. Well, I see I see restaurant chefs do this. Yeah, it's not. You don't want to just upend the saute pan and scrape everything out onto the plate. Um, anything that's burned on the edge of the pan is going to also end up on your plate. It's just like not. It's like when the um, when the bus guy at the at a restaurant. What is it? The, the busser? busser? When they come over to the table and like they start scraping plates in front of you <laughs> as they're clearing, that's what I equate it to. It's just really, um, it's not elegant. No, it's, it's it's inelegant. And also, I think if you're, especially if you're bringing like a nice platter of pasta or something to the table, you don't want that splatter on the edges. Yeah. You want it nice and centered. And you want, there's, yeah, why not make and it elegant? And spooning it out, you just sort of control where it goes. It's just nicer. Um, ooh, I'm a big fan and um, practitioner of number four. You can never have enough dish towels. So true. To grab the hot pans coming out of the oven, wiping the counter. Wiping your hands. Wiping your hands. Drying dishes. You know, also I learned in Bon Appetit years ago um, when from one of our old school rice recipes, you make the rice you take it off the heat and you put a dish towel over the pan and put the top back on. Correct. So the moisture just doesn't then go up to the top of the yeah. pot and then drip back down essentially. Yeah. You could do that with quinoa too. Anywhere mm -hmm. you want to like steam but yeah. absorb all that extra moisture. See, I like that. I thought that was a good one. And also the thing about when you don't have enough, enough dish towels is that then you don't wash them frequently enough 
and they get disgusting. That's really gross. So if you have a lot, then you can, I'm not saying you should have seven dish towels lying around the kitchen. I'm saying you should have plenty of backup so that you can swap out. Yes. Also dish towels like Levi's, they get better the more you wash them. Correct. But unlike Levi's, you actually need to wash them. Yeah, well, yeah, if you want to, because we get in like the whole like selvage denim thing where you don't ever wash your jeans, or maybe once a year you walk into the Pacific Ocean with your jeans on, but that's a whole different podcast. Um, oh, this is a good one, especially on Thanksgiving, which is coming up. Make a list before you start cooking. I always do that, even when it's just like, not always. I didn't do that last night when I had like raw broccoli dipped in olive oil for dinner, but if I'm Planning something, it just helps me keep my head straight. And you just learn this as a line cook. You have to have a list. My good friend, Judy Wong, uh, who runs those restaurants at Odeon and Cafe Luxembourg, uh, she's one of the most like, sort of organized home cooks I've ever seen. Anytime you go over to her house for dinner, she has all like the, 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 the whatever she's making that night, she has taped to her cabinets the name of the dish, the ingredients, you know, how you make it. And she just kind of crosses off as mm. she goes. And it's one of those things you sit down and everything's boom, ready. Right. Really I mean, impressive. you just, if especially when you're entertaining, you lose yourself halfway through and it's like, what am I doing again? And then just go back to the list. This is an interesting one because I, I don't think the average home cook thinks in terms, thinks in terms of sort of kitchen sanitation the way a professional has to. Um, store meat and fish on the bottom of the fridge so they don't drip juices on anything below them. These are not good juices. I mean, I don't, I don't think any. I don't even think we need to say anything more about that one. It's like just common one. sense. Like if something's going to ooze, it just let it ooze onto a place where it's just going to stay there. Yeah. Um, I think all right, number seven, I think, should be number one, clean as you go. Again, it was a stream of consciousness yeah. thing. But um, yeah, especially if. Or we, I would I would have said clean as you cook. Clean as you but also as you prep, like yeah, people who like keep going more... on their cutting board and just pushing things over to the side and then going more in the middle. But you've got like, you know, garlic skins over here and butts of cucumbers oh, over sorry. there. I'm sorry. Are you talking about my wife? No, I was talking about my sister. Oh, okay. <laughs> get, <laughs> Love get, her, get but. Get two of them together. Um, okay. See, th again, this is a professional. Oh, no, no. I was jumping ahead. Number nine. Number eight. Don't cook for anyone when you're sick. You yeah. just shouldn't do that. I know. I know. And that also is something that line cooks are very guilty of because you just you just take so much crap if you call out or say you're too sick to come to work. Like yeah. it's a sign of weakness, I Ooh. guess. But like that's that is really when you need to stay home. That's a little scary thought. Uh yeah. Given how many people in New York are sick all the time. And yeah. And how much people sweat over a line. Yeah. Okay, let's move on. Um, <laughs> but it's true at home, too. Speaking of line cooks, and this is something I never thought about, never throw water on a grease fire. What happens if you do that? The fire gets bigger. Ooh, that's not good. Mm -mm. So you throw, like, flour on it or salt. what? Salt. Ideally, salt. Like, kosher salt, I, Kosher right? salt. Yeah. That will put it out. But ideally, you should have a little fire extinguisher in your kitchen. Ideally. Do you? No. What? Number 11. Ooh, we're already, we're already moved on from the top 10. Or not top 10. It's because it's like, stream of consciousness. Um, interesting. I don't think I have this. Make sure you have white vinegar in your kitchen. Yeah. Why? It's good for everything, but it's especially good for cleaning and deodorizing. Such so as. it's great for cleaning stainless steel. So it's just diluted. I'm sure there's a real ratio, but mm -hmm. just 50-50 with water. 
and wipe down stainless steel with it. Like stainless steel pots, you mean? Like no, like your um, your range or oh. the front of your um, if you have one of those stainless steel dishwashers yeah, yeah. or fridges, That's and then also if you have a garbage disposal, it is great to like just put ice cubes and white vinegar down the really? garbage disposal. Because that can get a little smelly. That can totally get smelly, and then you might need to make a pickle, and you might. It's just a great all-purpose vinegar, and it's cheap. What about for, would you ever use it to clean a cutting board? Yeah, I have. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah, it's a good deodorizer. Be nice to the person who cleans up after you. Yeah. We've talked about this. Does Fernando do the dishes? So we kind of have a rule that that she who cooks doesn't clean. Um, I'm going to bet you do most of the cooking. And I do a lot of the cooking and also, but that's where clean as you go comes in. Like if you are going to- Don't leave the kitchen in a disaster area. If I'm going to walk away at the end and be like, you're up, dude. I don't want to leave him with like the nightmare. No. Um, and also just if you've worked in restaurants, you know that the di- literally no restaurant could function without dishwashers. Human, I mean, the human yes. role of being the dishwasher, yeah. the guy who takes out the garbage, the people who close down at night, like no, no restaurant business can function without them. And it's always amazing. Even like dinner for two, I'm always amazed. Like how are there this many dishes? Like, I'm, Simone and I, we made pasta and a salad, and it's just like, what? Like, what? How did this happen? And it's just like, yeah, it's always, I've always said, just in life in general, anything worthwhile takes four times the amount of effort you think it should. Yeah. You I know? had chefs who said that a lot too. Yeah. It's just, it is what it is. Um, oh, this one is very Alice Waters y. Unexcellent ingredients will never make an excellent meal. It's true. Also, you can get by with pretty good ingredients, but if something's just like not good, it's you can't make it good. Especially, I think the biggest thing is that you lose confidence as the cook. Like if you bring home a piece of fish that you thought was great and then you open up the package and you're like, ooh, I don't yeah. love the way it smells and I don't love the way it looks. Yeah. You could still cook it and probably no one would get sick and it would be fine. But like, you're not going to present it and serve it to people with the same gusto. You're no. going to be like nervous about well, it. I, listen, I think if you're, I think this holds true if you're cooking in a manner of which you are presenting fresh ingredients cooked relatively simply. You know, like I can go buy really mediocre ground beef from the grocery store with cheap hamburger buns and make probably make a pretty good tasty burger with 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 uh, iceberg lettuce and mayo. But I'm not trying to pre- present something great. You know what I mean? Yeah. If that kind of makes sense. You but if can you had that same beef food, that you feel uh-huh. good about it, then you're going to feel good about it. But if you have that mm. same beef, but maybe probably you should have cooked it on Thursday and now it's Friday. Well, and you're like, I you mean, know? yeah, sure. I, listen, I'm saying I mostly agree <laughs> with you, but there are certain, you know, like pasta with butter. And, you know, it's like, yes, if you have better French butter, it's going to taste better. But, you know, pasta with butter and cheese. Anyways, listen, I'm just going to move on from this one. Um, number 14. <laughs> Waste, oh, this is, see, I'm kind of guilty of this. Waste is a sign of poor training, laziness, and lack of skills. I definitely am guilty of the middle one, laziness. With wasting things. Yeah, I, and I, I feel I do it too much. I'm just like, eh, I don't want to deal with it. I'll just, yeah, I'm not going to. I'm just going to toss it or yeah. not deal with it. Because like when am I I'm going out tomorrow night and then I'm, when am I going to cook it? And then I feel bad and like that is a, that is a problem. I think that. Um, if everyone bought less to begin with, we would have less waste. Yeah, but you buy a portion. You can't buy like, oh, I just want half a bunch of parsley. True. But it comes as a bunch, and then you're left with parsley. Actually, lasts a long time. But 
other you know more delicate herbs and stuff. And I don't know. It, it's I the other thing is I think the the more you cook, and that when I was growing up, you know, we ate at home six seven days a week. Right. So my mom was constantly cooking, and you use what's in your fridge. I now have a life where I'm going out a couple nights a week, cooking a couple of weeks. I'm not, some nights I don't get home till late, so we're ordering in. So it's just like you make dinner on Tuesday, but then don't make dinner again till Friday. Right. You know, and then that's that's the challenge. Yep. Um, that so is the challenge. I cook more regularly, and you'll be less wasteful. That's my rule. Um, number fifteen: the best way to tell if something is cooked is to taste it. True. And yet, weirdly, people don't do this. Weirdly, we have ovens that now tell us, like, your food is ready. Like, no, it's not. <laughs> I don't think so. And that's just like, trust your senses. You know, people are like, how will it? this happen the other day? Because my son was cooking. Which one? Leo. He's 13. And he was, I was like, oh, Leo, I started the bacon. Keep an eye on it and keep it going. And he was like, well, how do I know when it's done? I was like, when it looks like bacon, yeah. crazy man. And like, you know, some people you get attached to, oh, six to eight minutes. Oh, 350 for 45. Like, no, it's, you'll know when it's done. I would also add, taste it, smell it. Mm -hmm. You know, you can smell like when like cake is in the oven, that sort of thing, you can tell like, oh, that's done. Or it's like, do you smell it yet? No. Well, it's not done yet. But it said 22 minutes. I'm like, well, it's does not it done. smell like it's done? It's not. Grains, you know? especially in beans, like people are like, how do I know when they're done? Like, put it in your mouth. Yep. There you go. Oh, this is interesting. Um, <laughs> and I'm not a, not a big fish cook. So hot fish is overcooked fish. It's true. So by the time the temperature of of a and this is just because fish is a delicate protein. Mm -hmm. So if you are doing a nice whole bronzino and the center of that fish where it's up against the, you know, the spine is like piping hot, it's it's over. I mean, it makes sense. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Like mm. well-cooked salmon. Yeah. But some people, like, if you like it that way, great. But honestly, it's overcooked. Okay. This one, this is, this is not a, I, I don't know. I don't think this applies to home cooks, but maybe it does. Maybe this is maybe this is a metaphorical thing. Number seventeen. Sometimes you have to clean the ceiling. Have you ever accidentally started a blender with the top off? Uh, I'm not going to say I haven't ever done that. <laughs> that might be a time that you have to clean the ceiling, the top of the range, upside. Yeah, it is yeah. also metaphorical. Like sometimes, like yeah, you're got to get down on your knees or up on a ladder. I will say this: we redid our kitchen. Like I don't know three years ago or something and we got like a hood put over the 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 range i've never cleaned those vents before <laughs> i should probably right you should clean sometimes you have to clean the ceiling of your hood oh uh, yeah so there's okay i'm gonna go home and clean my hood um number 18 use vinegar it's yeah great oh exactly they're it's stainless a degreaser. Yeah. the best place to be is in the kitchen in the morning before anyone else gets there don't you think that's true well, see, you're different than I. I don't take my coffee and I go to I go around the corner to get my coffee. Mm. So that's my moment of solitude. Mm -hmm. But I know what you mean about having like your space to yourself and the quiet. Yeah, and then getting all being the first one to take the things and, and to get the butter like you like it, and, and also just the, the quiet. Toast. Did yeah. I say quiet? Already? Yeah, yeah, no, no. I, like I, it quiet. I so I am I'm a hundred percent. I have a I yeah. My my kitchen is around the corner. My quote unquote kitchen. But sometimes for me that means being. Like on the weekends, my husband gets up before I do. Actually, most of the weekdays he does too. But that doesn't mean I don't appreciate the kitchen when I can get there alone. But this is also true if you're like away with friends on the weekend, sharing a house. 
Like to be the first one down in the kitchen mm. and not have to be like, yeah. what are we making? Um, sometimes for me, it's actually the morning is like the very late night, you know, when everybody else goes to bed. Yeah. I have the kitchen to myself. I like that. All right. Um, oh, this one bums me out. 19. If you see a single pantry moth, everything must go. You might think that you can isolate and get rid of them. You just, you can't. They can get into em, unopened em, packages. Emma's over there shaking her head. It's terrible. What do you mean they can get into unopened they packages? They can get in to unopened packages, like a cellophane, you know, uh -huh. like glued, like yeah. the top of a Bob's Red Mill or a bag of beans. They can get in. That's creepy. I know. What's the difference between a pantry moth and like a sweater moth? I don't know. I think they like different things. Pantry moths are tiny. Oh, and they God. come in the beans and the grains. Sometimes they're in, sometimes you bring them home because they get into. Like uh, if it's a cardboard box of pasta, they can just right, go. You're freaking me Sorry, out. freaking me out, man. I've I've been there. Okay, you know what? We're done with this segment. One more because I'm <laughs> tired of talking about pantry moths. All right, number twenty. You're better off serving okay food in a great, welcoming, fun environment than giving people amazing food with a frown on your face. True that. Um, I love this one. Where that where that one come from? I think for me, probably came from eating in a restaurant where, you know, the service is like, you're lucky to be here right now. Yeah. And it's like, I don't care what you're serving me. I'm never coming back here because I, I don't like how it feels. And it's true at home, too. Like, you can serve a roast chicken and some roasted potatoes and a couple of bottles of wine and have a great night. And people will re remember it forever. Yeah, they had it, fun. It felt good. Oh, my God. That was such a fun night. It was so fun. We I, laughed. Yeah. We ate with our hands. Um, yeah, too often people, for, and this happens at restaurants and at homes where people sort of overly plan out a meal, like they forget that fun is the most important ingredient. Totally. And it's like, oh yes, I was like amazing. But it's like, was it fun? Did you yeah. have a good time? This has been a good time, Carl. I music. love that you like cold read them too. Yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> first time. All right. So that's Carl's top 20. You can find it on bonappetit.com called 20 Essential Tips to Make You a Better Cook. Thanks, Carla. Always fun. Bon Appetit Foodcast is produced by Emma Wurtzman and Carrie Polis and edited by Mitra Kaboli. Our theme music is by Valerie and the Grady's with additional music by Nathaniel Wurtzman. We have new episodes every Wednesday. And if you want to tell us about this or any other episode, email us at bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.